Father, your word is great. We thank you that you have given it to us as a guidebook, a guidebook that not only teaches us how to live this life, but how to prepare for the next. We understand it communicates to us your will, gives us information where we have come from, and tells us ultimately where we will go. We also learn from your word, Lord, that we are eternal beings. And we desire to spend that eternity with you. And for those who don't know you yet, that don't have the chance or the opportunity, pray that you would put them across our paths, whether it's here in Lakeside or somewhere abroad. Use us to the fullest, Lord, and help us to be able to recite your word because you have placed it in our hearts and we study. Lord, there's so many that need you and and we pray that you would give us your heart for them. In Jesus' name. Now, the threefold ministry of Jesus is what we left off with, that he was sent to this earth to be of no report, not, not to be anybody that is a leader in the community, that type of thing. He was a carpenter. He cut wood. He put it together. He built things and stables and and things like that with his father, Joseph. That's what he did for the family business. But when his ministry started, he was teaching, preaching, and healing. That's what he was called to do. That's what the father said he wanted him to do here on the earth. And that begins in verse 35, or it tells us again in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And he did this as a result of compassion. Now, this word compassion, it is the, one of the strongest words in the Greek that you can use to describe how you feel on the inside. Now, for you men in here, if you've ever been in love at age 13 or 14 or 16, sometimes it can hurt so much, it, it just aches on the inside, this feeling that you have. Now, women, I'm... I'm not a woman, but I'm sure there are these times where women feel this overwhelming sense of maybe being loved or being hurt, and it's almost uncontrollable. That's the type of thing that Jesus is experiencing here when he has compassion on the people. And it refers to this area of the bowels. You feel it in your gut. It's a physical feeling that you experience. Verse 36 says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then 37 and 38 deal with this harvest. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, this is metaphorical language. Whenever we run across metaphorical language, we want to know what it actually means. It doesn't mean grab your sickle, there's a field of hay over there or a field of wheat, and we're going to put the sickle to the wheat, and we're going to pick it up, and we're going to take it to the threshing floor. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about farming. He is talking about people, people that need to be brought in so to speak you know the song bringing in the sheaves you're not bringing in wheat sheaves we're not doing that we are supposed to be reaching out and gathering up people for the kingdom of god now to understand fully what this means we have to look for to scripture for the interpretation now in the old testament there was lots of 
festivals and things surrounding harvest time, like in August, July and August. And the whole community of the Jews, they would be involved. All, the whole community back then, all the countries, the nations, they would all be involved in this harvest time. And some people came up with false gods, and they worshipped those false gods when it came to the harvest, the abundant harvest. And, and I don't want to go too much into that, but we want to look to Scripture in the New Testament specifically to see, well, what is this harvest? Who are the workers? What is being harvested? And what is the harvest field? All those things are mentioned here. Well, it could mean something that is depicted for us in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 30. I'm going to read this to you. It says, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the weeds and bring it into my barn. So here's a depiction of a harvest by the same author, just a couple of chapters over. And by the way, there were no chapter or verse distinctions when this was written. It was just written as a letter. And so you go, okay, well, here's, here's another case where there's a harvest. In verse 39 of that same chapter, he says, And the enemy who sows them, talking about weeds, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And you might say... Well, that's what this is talking about. This is talking about the end of the age and the angels are the harvesters and we need to pray to the Lord that the Lord will bring angels to bring the harvesters. There's only one problem with that. Jesus looks over in context. Jesus looks over the crowd. Where is he? He's in Israel. Specifically, he's in the area of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee in the northern area. He's looking at all the Jews and he's thinking, what, in chapter 13? And the angels will gather all the weeds and throw them into the fire and burn them. So he's looking at the Jews and saying, the angels need to grab them and burn them. That's not what he's talking about in context, especially when you have right before that, he had compassion on them. I love you so much, burn. You know, so He's not talking like that, and people misinterpret what Scripture has to say. Revelation also goes on with this same theme, chapter 14, verse 15. It says, Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who, sits, who is sitting or was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And, of course, the book of Revelation is all about judgment. And that's not what this harvest is. This harvest is different. Again, this is figurative, and we're looking for what is the reality in this. So what is this harvest? Who are the harvesters? What is being harvested? And who are the weeds and who are the wheat, so to speak? Well, the harvest, of course, with what we just read, is the end of the age. But what does it mean in the time that Jesus existed what he was talking to his disciples concerning this harvest and what they would have understood him to mean. That's how we interpret all scripture. We don't interpret scripture according to our culture, our circumstances. We first have to interpret according to what was going on back then. Then we apply it to ourselves. That's how we get the application. So we look back at this. What is the harvest? It's a time for the people to be saved and discipled. That's what he's talking about. He's looking over the multitudes and he says, the harvest is great. And he's looking at the Jews, his fellow Jews. Who are the harvesters? Well, it would be those who are disciples or believers in Jesus. Those are the ones. Specifically, it was the disciples. That's who the harvesters were supposed to be in this case. What is being harvested? Well, 
those who are being harvested are those who are Jews who are like sheep without a shepherd. They're kind of scattered. They're wandering around. So Jesus is having compassion on the people. They need the information that God has for them. What is wrong is with the leaders of the Jews, they're leading them astray, and they would be, if you brought into the context here, they would be considered the weeds because they don't follow God. And that's the whole context of what has taken place here. So Jesus says to the Jews, we need harvesters because these people need to be saved and discipled and brought into the fold of God, so to speak, or the wheat put into the barns. And Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will provide workers. The workers would be the disciples because in the very next chapter, and this is how it's purposely laid out, guess who gets called? The 12. So it is being answered in the very next chapter. Who are going to be the harvesters? The 12 disciples who become apostles. But how do we apply this now? Just this little section, how do we apply this to ourselves? When, when Jesus says back then, look at the harvest. It's ripe. We need harvesters. What would our harvest be? What is the field for us? The field for us would have been Hosanna Christian Fellowship yesterday. By the way, there were four churches involved in making this happen. Hosanna. Us, Calvary Chapel Alpine, and Calvary Chapel Perfect Love. Calvary Chapel Perfect Love came here, and they were into it. They were just like working at the booths and, you know, the games and everything, and they just loved being there. And so that, that's really cool when the churches can come together like that, and we put forth this effort. People get saved, and they get uh, inducted into the kingdom, and so that's what it's all about. Is it just limited to Spirit of Christmas on the main? no. It's not limited to that. Now, first, you have to be in agreement that there are people that need to be brought into the fold of God. Then you have to be in agreement, and there are those who are weeds and those who are saved. And it goes on to depict what happens to those who are called in chapter 10. But it's our job to go out and just present the gospel, to give it to the people who are out there. We're supposed to help them to understand what God's will is. And so when we do all of that, whether it's on a Saturday night or it's in your house, guess what time of year it is? It's Christmas. Now, we're going to sing a closing Christmas song here today, but what better time to talk to somebody about the real meaning of Christmas? And I know we avoid that a lot of times with family members. No, no, you don't want to bring that up anymore. And I was having a discussion with some people about that. And they said, no, stop, don't talk about it anymore in the youth group. We were talking about that. I asked them, hey, have you ever talked to somebody about Christ? I, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they get a little bit of pushback. You're not going to talk about this anymore. They change the subject. They don't want to hear about it. And we don't have to beat them over the head. You will listen to me. And you take out your big King James Bible and you smack them upside the head. Sit down and listen. You need to be saved. And if we don't do that, we give them the gospel. And if they accept it, that's great. But all of us are called to do that. It's not just my job. I'm supposed to equip the saints for the work that God has called us to do. For instance, if you were to memorize, well, let's see. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and Romans chapter 10, verse 13. You guys know all those, right? And you have those down, you're ready to go. You know, there's, there's none who are righteous, all have gone astray, and we understand that the penalty of sin 
is death, and that's 623. But God, in his kindness to us, in his grace, he was a sacrifice for us. And if you confess with your mouth, you don't have to be one of those under judgment. And I'm just condensing it down, what all of that means. But we have to be able to clearly and succinctly give the gospel to somebody. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that the penalty of sin is death? You know that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And you have the ability to pass from death unto life. All you have to do is confess. And if you confess, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that's in a nutshell what it is. Now, no conversation goes just like that. But we all need to be prepared to give the gospel. And if they want to know something else, well, study up. And if you haven't studied up, bring them to somebody that has. But it's our job to reach out. It's our job to say, hey, would you like to go to church? You know, church is really nice. The fellowship is all good there. I don't know about the pastor so much, but everything else is really good. You, you want to be involved in the fellowship there. You need to know Jesus Christ. And if we're doing that, then we're fulfilling the call that God has on our lives, just like the 12 that are here in chapter 10. It says, He called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. This is probably Nathaniel. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, or Jude. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. What word did I emphasize? And there are one, two, three, four, five, six times and is used. It's not three sets of four or four sets of three. It's six sets of two. Why is that important? Because God wants us to go out two by two. It says that in the Gospel of Mark, that calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So when we go out and we do some witnessing or we're doing some ministry to the Lord, never go alone. We're supposed to go with somebody. Why? Because you got like a wingman. You know, when they're flying, the Navy pilots up there, they have a wingman, right? Now I'm going to give you an example. I've mentioned this example before. But when Patty and I were in Ireland, we went over there with Ray Bentley and Maranatha and we put on a couple of outreaches over there, and we went to this place called Grafton Street. And the Irish were there. Grafton Street is all closed off, and it's kind of like this paver area in concrete. And people commute. They walk through it twice a day, early in the morning, and in the afternoon they walk back through that. So we went there, and we were doing stomp. You guys know what stomp is. You take a trash can, you take drumsticks, and you beat on it, and you're all in sync, and you get a crowd around you. And, and so we did all of that. And then when we're all done... We stop and we talk with the people. That's what we did in this area where people are walking through. Well, it just so happened there was this English language class that was upstairs right where we were, and they let out. And it was people from all over the world that wanted to learn English. And there happens to come out this guy. He's about six foot tall. He's from China, and he wants to speak or talk in English. So I said, what an opportunity. So I walked up with him, and I was with the drummer for Maranatha, and he was kind of like my wingman that was right there. And as I was witnessing to this guy, he was praying. 
And I, I gave him the gospel. And it, to, I want to condense the story a little bit. I gave him the full gospel. And at one point as I'm giving it to him, I could see he was just tense. He was just feel like, oh, like I got to get out of here. And I go, and I, I just sensed there was something that I needed to do, but I didn't know what. And so the guy who was with me, he's praying, and I just instantly, I knew what it was. And God kind of told me because of the praying that was going on. And I turned to him and I said, I want to stop for a second. I want to tell you something. I'm not going to ask you for any money. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, okay. And he just relaxed all of a sudden. And then he heard the gospel and I said, would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ? He goes, yes, I would. And I was kind of dumbfounded. I was like taking off. Are you sure? <laughs> and I prayed with him right there. He accepted the Lord. I gave him my Bible because he didn't have one. And he went back to China. And he's going back to China. And he's going to tell everybody in China where he got the Bible. It's in English. It's another book in English. And because you go out two by two. Now, if I would have been there by myself... And, and the guy told me, he goes, man, I was praying for you. I knew that there was something, and I just asked the Lord to reveal what it was. And the guy just melted after that. And it was God giving discernment for what's taken place, but there was prayer covering it. And so that's why these guys would go out two by two, whether one is speaking or um, you can't speak both at the same time. One is speaking, one is praying. That's how we're supposed to do it. So that's an example to us here. Now, what about these people? Who have been called by God. Now there were more than just the 12. But he called out the 12. Now do you guys know who the first one was. In the whole context of scripture. That Jesus had an influence on. That went and told his brother. We have met the Messiah. You know who that is? Andrew. Andrew was the first. Andrew went and told Peter. Peter said, what? And they were all kind of following John the Baptist there. Well, here's the guys. Peter, the impulsive, he was a fisherman, right? We kind of know his attitude and, and habits. Andrew, he was the first to be called with his brother. Both were disciples of John the Baptist. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they were also fishermen. Philip, uh, he was a little slow with spiritual truth. For instance, when Jesus said, hey, what about feeding the multitude here? Why don't we go and buy them bread? And Philip goes, oh, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. And he kind of wasn't tracking with what Jesus wanted to do. And so probably a little slow, Bartholomew, he, came, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, a typical Jewish fashion. Now, I have Jewish blood in me. My grandfather was a, a full Jew. And I'm familiar a little bit with the Jewish culture, and I dated some uh, a Jewish girl, and so I, I'm familiar with the people a little bit. And you could just see them. I vow, anything good come from Nazareth? No, ah, kind of like a scoffer, you know. Like, and that's Bartholomew who's here. And he, Jesus says, "Hey, I want you." Thomas, what was he? A doubter. Matthew, oh, the worst, an IRS agent. James, James, the son of Alphaeus, it's like, who? He's called James the Less. And the reason he's called James the Less, the word the Less in the King James that is used, he was probably small, small of stature. 
Now, if you think of Peter and maybe the fishermen, rough, tough, and gruff, and hairy, and, you know, smelly, and all of, all of that. And here you have James the Less, who's probably a, a smaller guy who's there, Thaddeus, or Jude, who pinned the book of Jude. Simon the Zealot, a radical, to say the least. I mean, he was always on the edge. And Judas the betrayer. And Jesus chose all these guys. Let's kind of summarize it here. Smelly, hot-tempered, scoffer, doubter, IRS agent, a runt, possibly obscure, radical betrayer. Let's just get all you guys in here, and you're the ones. How come he didn't go to the local university and say, I want you guys. You are educated in the word of God. No, he wanted a blank slate. He wanted people that were of no report maybe even of ill repute a little bit, that was set off to the side of society, maybe scoffed at, that type of thing. And why? Because he didn't want the vessel to be the prominent issue with the message. He wanted the message to be the prominent issue that was brought in the vessel. What does that bring to us? A lot of hope. I mean, look at us. You should see what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul the Apostle is talking about those who were called. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish thing. He just called us a fool, right? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's why he calls the poor, the halt, the maim, the blind, the not so popular, the ones who are outcast in society. Those who have everything, have experienced everything, have had such a blessed life, it's harder for them to see their need for Christ. But as adversity comes, that shapes us. Now, that's a problem today. Uh, I try to get news and information and uh, just cultural things from just about everywhere that I can. I don't think I shared this with you guys. I shared it with some individuals. Did I share about the uh, words that can be used at Trinity College in England? Did I share that with you guys? They are so concerned that the children at the university might fail They have issued orders that you can no longer use words like do and don't when giving directives on homework or some directive that's given in class, some uh, direction to take. Because don't may cause the child at the university to feel like they might fail. And so you don't want to say, don't be late with your assignment because that may cause them and push them over the edge where they might not get the document in and then fail. You might be responsible by saying, don't do that and make them just fall apart. 
they need to get together with some of the schools here where they have puppies and pudding. And, and the words you can't say, and I was watching a little uh, YouTube clip on somebody who was the head of a debate team at a particular school, and they came up and they said, you know, when people say things that are offensive, it can hurt people's feelings, and we should probably ban that type of speech. And, and I'm thinking, what happened to our generations? I mean, and the people in England and Trinity, when they're doing this, what happened to the great generation at the time of Winston Churchill? Do you remember what happened back then? Winston Churchill didn't know exactly what to do, and they were facing overwhelming odds. And so he decided to go to the people. He got uh, in the movie that was about Churchill. He, the king told him, go and ask the people what you should do, whether you should surrender or whether you should fight. And the people on the subway in the movie that was depicting of him, they said, fight. Well, what if we're losing? Fight. Don't give in. And so that's what they did. And we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them, you know, on the seas, on the plain. And that's, it rallied the people. What happened to that generation that said, I don't care if I die. I'm going to stand for this. And Lord willing, we're not raising a generations of saltine crackers that just crunch at any type of adversity and when we think to ourselves i want to protect my child from any kind of harm or pain that harm and pain actually shapes them into the who's they're supposed to be but we're not supposed to deliver that harm and pain this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you now it you allow the circumstances of life to come and you don't always bail out your kids because they'll never learn and it actually toughens them the adversity toughens them for what lies ahead and so if we see that going on what do you think the lord would have you do would he have you say something to someone would he have you speak to a parent who seems to be coddling the little child, and they put them in a bubble suit so that nothing, bubble wrap, they put them outside with bubble wrap, you know, that type of thing. What was it, the Christmas story? They put the kid, shoot your eye out. What was that one where he's in all the, the coats and everything to keep him warm so he wouldn't get harmed in any way and he could fall over, but he couldn't get up once he fell over because he was so protected. You know, when the adversity comes, that shapes us, that gives us the character that we need to become the individuals that God wants us to be. If we're always avoiding the possibility of harm, we'll never grow. We'll never succeed in what God wants us to accomplish. Because he has to... Pastor Chuck used to say, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, he used to say, in order for a pastor to be used, he has to be broken. What an encouraging word that was when I heard that the first time. And and that's what he said. You know, it's like, I get it. And he went on to explain how that happens. And for us, it's not like we're signing up for adversity just like Martin Luther used to whip himself on the back because he had tried to make himself righteous by doing that with a, a little flagellum and had little bone shards or metal shards on it. I don't know which it was. And he thought by buffeting his body, it would make him more holy. That's not what makes us more holy. It's the adversity that comes along that gives us the right heart attitude when we are communing with Jesus. And he will say, this is okay. You will survive. Like Paul the Apostle. Did Paul the Apostle have an infirmity? A thorn in the flesh? How many times did he go to God and Jesus and say, would you please take this away? And Jesus said, No, my grace is sufficient. But what do we do with our own kids? 
Not, not that you leave the thorn from the rose in their hand, but you understand what I'm talking about? It's like, this is going to happen, and when it happens to our own ki- our kids or children or friends around us, we get by their side and go, it's going to be okay. I'm going to walk with you during this time of trouble. I'm going to help you to make the right decisions. I'm going to help you get back on your feet and do what has to be done. But I'm not going to remove it from it. Jesus prayed that for us. That not that we would be removed from the world, but that he would be with us as we go through it. That's the point of the disciples going out two by two, suffering persecution. That's what he gets into next here. So the, the way that it's set up here, going forward, we have those who are sent, the supernatural sustainability of those people who are being sent, the suffering that will ensue, Uh, They will always be under suspicion by the authorities and they are not to shrink back or be afraid and sacrifice everything to follow Christ. That's what the next outline is. It's, It's almost like the Gospel of Matthew has given to us, this is the syllabus for our life. This is what's going to happen. You are called. You will be sustained by the Lord. Don't worry. Suffering is going to come your way. And you're always going to be under suspicion by those who are out there. I was talking to Alex and to Sean, who is part of the witnessing team up in Alpine. And they're actually going out and doing street witnessing. Street preaching. Now, anybody want to sign up for street preaching? And they, the last place they went to that he talked to me about... There is a bar at the end of Grand in Pacific Beach, right down by the beach, and they stand right out front, and they preach, street preach, right out front. Hallelujah. You know, you you get to a place like that, and imagine somebody coming out of the bar in Pacific Beach. Are you guys familiar with the Pacific Beach and the reputation of Mission Beach and Pacific Beach? You go down there, he, he told me that a couple of times, and they're not trying to be abrasive they're just trying to give the gospel in a verbal form he said there's a couple of times where the police had to come and stand between them and the people and you know our little megan megan's not here today right she's with phantom right okay little megan uh, apparently a guy came out of there and grabbed megan around the neck him with me you know and they actually had to grab the guy and pull him off of her you know several guys had to do that and they were just going to kind of take her away you know that type of thing so i've uh, suffer persecution yeah you will who wants to sign up for street preaching you know if it's like well, you know we're all going to be called to one thing or another not everybody is called to do that and i understand why they do that and i'd never tell them not to if that's what the lord called them to but if you live for christ we will suffer persecution <clears throat> like for me where do i get the persecution i i get it from the outside i get it from the inside i get it from the enemy i get it from the world it just comes from everywhere. Just in my position. Anybody in my position gets that kind of thing. If you open your mouth and you witness to somebody, you're eventually going to run across that opposition. That opposition actually benefits you. You can have compassion on the people like Jesus did, and they were the ones that were going to crucify him. Say, crucify him. And he still had compassion on them. What a change of heart that is in us, if that's our attitude. Even though they might kill us, mostly figuratively speaking, we still have compassion on them that they are lost. And so these 
who are going to be sent out in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Here they have the manual. Do not go among the Gentiles or any, enter any town of the Samaritans. Now, there's a whole history with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were taken away by the... The Jews were taken away by the Samaritans because of the idolatry in the northern kingdom under Rehoboam. And when they went with the Samaritans, they... Or excuse me, the Assyrians, they intermarried with them. They came back on Mount Gerizim. They set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Zion. And they said, we worship up there. And when Nehemiah and Ezra came to rebuild the temple... They said, well, we want to do that too, or the walls around the temple. We want to do that too. And, and Nehemiah said, no, you're not going to have a part with us because they had intermarried. They had broken the covenant with God. God told them, do not intermarry with those who are unbelievers or pagans. Only marry those who are Jews. And they didn't do that. And so there was always this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And that's why Jesus tells them, don't go to the Samaritans. We don't need to raise a bunch of conflict. Just go to the Jews. And so he says, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel in verse 6. As you go, and here he, here's the instruction of what to do, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. There's only one thing missing. The teaching. See, you're supposed to go out and preach first, minister to the needs of the individual and then teach them. That's what comes next. And that was the job of the apostles. So there's a clear distinction made here, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. When the apostle Paul came along, the message went to the Gentile. And he says, as you go, preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is near. That is to be the message. When we go out, we're supposed to say something along the line, All of us eventually die. None of us are going to get out of this earth alive. And we will eventually have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And he will say, you believed in my son, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sin. Enter into your rest. Or you rejected my son, Jesus Christ. Enter into judgment. And by the way, that is forever. I also went over this again with the youth. And you should probably write this down maybe in the front of your Bible. And I talked about the doctrine of total annihilation And the idea that punishment is forever. It does not end when we die. If we don't know Christ, Matthew chapter 25 verse 46, it says some are raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting punishment in the NIV. And in the book of Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, he says some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And both of those verses use the word everlasting or eternal which means it lasts forever there isn't a place where we go that we just fall asleep and we don't dream and we never wake up that is not in scripture and so if somebody ever wants to know well is there a third place to go is there like a a purgatory or is there another island somewhere that i can go to there is no other place it is either with jesus christ in heaven or it is separated in hell, where there is darkness, there's weeping, and there's gnashing of teeth. Now, just to reiterate, and I'll probably close it up here, to reiterate, if we know Christ, if we have said something like, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Please be my Lord and Savior. Make me your disciple. Those types of things, he promises to do it. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's how we get saved from the judgment which is to come.
If we haven't done that or you're not sure, there's always a possibility that somebody in here is not sure. Well, am I really saved? When we do communion, just turn to God and say, God, save me. He knows everything that is encompassed in that. You say, well, I, I don't know what scripture really wants from me. Jesus wants you to be saved. If you understand that means forgiven of sins, live forever with him in heaven, that's all you have to do. And so when you get the communion and you're sitting there, you go, Jesus, please save me. He promises to do so. It's as simple as that. And so what we're going to do when it comes to the communion here, uh, first, if the worship team would come up, we are going to sing a song. And, uh, of course, it's going to glorify Jesus Christ. But as the bread and cup are being passed out, I would ask that you would hold on to them. And Eric is going to come up, and he's going to uh, say a few words about communion. And remember that communion is for the person who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If there's any sin that you know that you're involved in and you need to ask forgiveness, you just say, Jesus, forgive me of that. And he calls us to repent. If you're weak in an area, well, ask for help. And the Lord will provide the help. But God wants us to be in fellowship with him. That's the whole point. That's why he's sending out the 12. And remember, as we get into it next time, it's going to be a guidebook for us and how we're to go out. So if you guys would like to come forward and grab this and, and pass it out, that'd be great.